This Torah class is brought to you by TorahAnytime.com. Okay, we are discussing today uh, Rabbi Akiva and his students and the Omer period between Pesach and Shavuot. We're right in the middle of the Omer period. I want to dedicate this class to my dear mother who is outside of us today, first year. Um, it's also in Israel, it's called Yom HaShoah where we remember the Holocaust and those who were perished in the Holocaust. So I think it's very appropriate, this, this class. Rabbi Kiva was uh, very similar, uh, a little bit similar. My mother was a little similar to Rabbi Kiva. She was, uh, whatever she studied, whatever book she looked at, she always put her notes in it. She wrote underlined, you find all, all the books in her house were underlined. And she would study them, like Rabbi Kiva was studious. She was very studious and she underlined and she put her notes in all the books. Also, Rabbi Kiva's time was like the time of the Holocaust. Many Jews were killed, millions if not hundreds of thousands and millions of Jews were killed by the Romans in the period of Rabbi Kiva. So it's appropriate to have this class today um, in memory of my mother and also in memory of the Shoah, those, those people who fell in the Shoah. Be'ezrat Hashem Hashem will bring speedily the Mashiach and the Geulah Shlema. Amen. So among the many great figures in Jewish history, we have to realize, among the many great figures in Jewish history, one of the greatest was Rabbi Akiva. And why was Rabbi Akiva so great? So before we even talk about the history of Rabbi Akiva, why was he so great? And the answer is because the whole Torah we have today is based on what Rabbi Akiva passed down to his students. Now, we know, we know the period of the Omer is a period where 24,000, according to most accounts, 24,000 students of Rabbi Kiva died. But it says after they died, he took another, he went down south, it says, I guess into the Negev around that area, and he took another five students. So his other five students, these five students, his five students that he took, he taught them the whole Torah. Each one of them were experts in certain fields of Torah, and each one wrote a whole book of the Torah. Rabbi Meir Baraness, we all know, he buried in Tiberia. Rabbi Meir Baraness was one of the prime students of Rabbi Akiva. Rabbi Huda Barilai, whatever the Mishnah says, Rabbi Huda, it's Rabbi Huda Barilai. Rabbi Lazar ben Shamua, who was Rabbi Lazar anyway, times mentioned, mentioned the Mishnah, Rabbi Lazar. Rabbi Lazar ben Shamua, Rabbi Oshia, or the five students of Rabbi Akiva, the ones who really we get the whole Torah we have today, the Mishnah and the Tosefta and all the bright thought, all different students of Rabbi Akiva, and therefore we have to thank Rabbi Akiva. So Rabbi Akiva became a very seminal figure in the transmission of the Torah to future generations. That's why he's so famous. That's why everyone talks about Rabbi Akiva. Rabbi Akiva was a classic Baal Teshuvah. Rabbi Akiva was a classic Baal Teshuvah, maybe not a classic. He became Baal Teshuvah at the age of 40. Now, he did not become a Baal Teshuvah of his own. He became a Baal Teshuvah because of his Amazing wife, Rachel. Amazing, amazing woman. This woman was an amazing woman. She was willing to sacrifice everything she had, which was tremendous. She was the daughter of Kalba Sabua. Rabbi say she was the daughter of Kalba Sabua, one of the richest men of the generation. Kalba Sabua, one of the richest men of the generation. Kalba Sabua means a satisfied dog. It says if you entered his house hungry, if you entered Kalba Sabua's house empty, you would leave it full, satisfied, like a satisfied dog. Apparently, satisfied dogs, when they're really full, they start panting. It says you couldn't leave Kalbasubo's house without panting. It person would be so full and so full of food. You could not leave Kalbasubo's house. That was, Robert, that was Rachel, 
Rachel, Rabbi Akiva's wife's father, tells us about a very rich, one of the rich men's, rich men of a generation. And she was a very rich woman. She was uh, the only inheritor of his wealth. She was meant to be the only inheritor of his wealth. He only had one daughter, Rachel. And Rachel was the inheritor of Kalba Safua, phenomenal wealth. And she gave everything up in order to marry this poor, illiterate shepherd, Akiva. It's amazing. She married this poor, illiterate shepherd, Akiva. She saw something in Akiva that she never saw in anyone else. Here she was, this very, very rich young girl who had everything life had to offer. And she was doted on by her father, who was a multi-millionaire. She could ask for anything she wanted. I'm sure he was producing all these uh, very eligible bachelors for her to meet. And she never liked anyone. Who did she go for? She went for the 40-year-old illiterate shepherd. Crazy. crazy. Sounds very crazy. But she apparently, she could see his potential, which is something which is very hard to see. When you look at people and look at them down and out, and the guy's a shepherd, he's dressed in like a pauper. And uh, she saw something in Akiva, I guess, I don't know what it was that she saw, but whatever she saw, she was willing to put her life on the line for her intuition. She was willing to sacrifice everything she had for the intuition that she had that Akiva is going to be one of the greatest leaders of the generation, one of the greatest rabbis of the generation. Amazing intuition. How can you see a poor 40-year-old shepherd going to be one of the great rabbis of the generation? I don't know. She was amazing. This is Rachel. And she, not, don't know if she was she made. She was willing to put everything she had on the line. Her father says, you marry this poor illiterate shepherd. I'm going to disown you. And you know what? She married him anyway, but only on condition that Akiba is going to become a serious student of Torah. Now, Akiba at that time was definitely not what you call a hacham. He was definitely not learned. He didn't even know how to read. The, the Gemara says, 40 years old, totally illiterate shepherd. The Gemara says, I just want to quote to you this, this um, Gemara. This is Gemara in Pesachim. It's in Daf Memtet Amudbet, amazing Gemara. The Gemara talks about the classic Am Haaretz. Who is the classic Am Haaretz? And Am Haaretz is an ignoramus, a man of the land, an ignoramus. We call it today, we call them um, illiterate. Rabbi Akiva, he says, Kishayiti Am This is Rabbi Akiva. This is many years later, at least 30 years later, when he was one of the top rabbis of the generation. Kishayiti Am he says. When I was an Amaritz, Amarti, I said to myself, who will give me a rabbi? I will bite him like a donkey. Imagine. <laughs> what a thing to say. Imagine he was under 40 years old. I don't know how old he was when he said this. He said, I would say to myself, who will give me the rabbi? And I'll bite him like a donkey. What do you mean, bite him like a donkey? So the, his students were perplexed. They said, what do you mean, you bite him like a donkey? Bite him like a, like a, like a dog. Why, why, why bite like a donkey? He says, no. The donkey bite is much worse. Donkeys are very, very, <laughs> they never let go. They bite and they never let go. They break the bones of a person. He says, if I bit a, a rabbi that time, I would bite him like a donkey's bite. It's the worst bite. Because donkeys never let go. They're so stubborn. They never let go and they bite all the way to they break someone's bones. So imagine, what a thing to say. Rabbi Akiva says, I was a total Amaris. I, I was totally ignorant. Not only was I totally ignorant, I hated 
those who study Torah, I view them as, a lot of people today view them as just wasting time. These guys are wasting time. They're parasites. That's what Rabbi Gia said. When I was in Amaret, I viewed the rabbis as parasites. A lot of people today view people who study the yeshiva as parasites. They don't view them as being cogs in the wheel of tradition, of keeping our traditions alive, keeping our Torah alive, keeping our spiritual life alive. And they view them as useless. That's what Rabbi Kiva says. I viewed rabbis as useless. I was willing to bite them like a donkey bite. A lot of people say, you know, Rabbi Kiva was descendant of converts. And the converts he was descended from were descended from Sisera, no other than Sisera, one of the great enemies of the Jews. Sisera was killed in the time of Devorah, Barak and Devorah during the time of Shoftim. And Rabbi Kiva was a direct descendant of Sisera, according to the Talmudic sources. Anyway, here we are. So here's Akiva, the shepherd, 40-year-old illiterate shepherd. And here is Rachel, this millionaire's daughter, looking out the window, and she sees how he looks after the sheep. And she was so impressed of his chesed, of his kindness, and the way he apparently knew how to look after sheep. He was, it showed his brilliance, his intellect, in terms of how to look after sheep. He knew he was, he was, he was looking after the sheep in a very scientific kind of way. She, she observed him. So this is not a regular shepherd. This is not a low-class shepherd. This is a very high-class shepherd. This is a very intellectual shepherd. <laughs> Listen, it's very hard to know. how you, you look at a shepherd, I don't know. You study the shepherd, you look at the shepherd. How long do you look at the shepherd to see what kind of shepherd is this? She had this intuition. She had this ability to see a person, to look at a person and ignore. The, tar, the Mishnah says, Al-Tistakel Kankan. Don't look at the packaging. You know, we all look at packaging. We see how the person's dressed. We see how, well, they look, they look successful. They don't look successful. They look smart. They don't look smart. They look uh, how they dress, how they, uh, what car they drive, what house they live in. We study people by the vessels they are wrapped in. You know, today, packaging is a multi-billion dollar business. You, know, you buy perfume. I mean, look at the packaging. Everything's packaging. You buy stuff. You look at the packaging. The packaging is more than usually what's inside the packaging. So the, the Gemara says, the Misha said, which is customary to learn starting the Shabbat. So I think we learn between Pesach and Shavuot, six chapters of Birkei Avot. So it's, uh, it's a good time to learn a bit of Birkei Avot. Don't look at the wrapping. Don't look at the vessel. Look at what's inside the vessel. So here is the vessel. The vessel is a shepherd. The vessel is a 40-year-old. The vessel is illiterate. Do you look at the packaging or do you look at what's inside? Look at the soul. Look at the potential of that shepherd. That's so hard to see. Because we just dismiss the shepherd. He knows nothing. He's ignorant and illiterate. And that's what Kalba Sabua did. You, you're giving, you're going to marry a shepherd, this ignorant shepherd, this 40-year-old man. He's ignorant and he's old and he's poor, poverty. And you're going to marry him, Rachel? She says, yes, I am. Because I see his tremendous soul and I see his tremendous potential. And he says, you know what? I'm going to disown you, Rachel. And she said, okay. And she's disowned. She marries Akiva. She goes with a gut feeling. And Akiva tries desperately to find a rabbi who will teach him. You know why? Because he's 40 years old. He goes to Yeshiva. Yeshiva says, first question, how old are you? 40. So, no, what do you know? He says, I don't know anything. I don't even know Aleph Bet and the Rosh Hashiva says, too bad, how sad, goodbye. We can't have you here. And this happened a few times. 
until he found an amazing rabbi called Nahum Ish Gamzu. Now, Nahum Ish Gamzu, there's a place called Gimzo, but he was called Nahum Ish Gamzu because his favorite saying was Gamzu Letova. Even this will be for the good. Even this will be for the good. So the first question is, how old are you? Four years old? Gamzu Letova. That will be good. That's good. Imagine Rabbi Akiva's wonderment. So what's the good of Rabbi? Four years old. <laughs> Second question. What do you know? He says, I don't even know Alephet. And Nachavish Gamza says, Gam Zuletova. That's good. What? Why is that good? Who knows what's good about that? It's very good. And uh, so Nachavish Gamza took him under his wing. And of course, everything is Gam Zuletova. Everything is good. There's no such thing as bad in God's world. Nachavish Gamza could only see good in God's world, even though someone else would see something bad. Nachumish Gamzu would only see good. That's so hard. It's so hard to live in that kind of level. You know, I see bad things happening around us, and it's so hard to say, this is God's world. God is not a God of evil. God is a good God. And therefore, everything in this world must be good. We just cannot see. We don't know. We see clips of the movie. We can't see the whole movie, and therefore, we don't know where it's going. We don't know where it's heading. We don't know how to interpret this. And give it the benefit of the doubt. God's world is good. Anyway, so Rabbi Kiva, he 24 years of study, 24 years. It says 12 years. He left his wife for 12 years, obviously with her permission. And he comes back after 12 years of study. And he hears a conversation from outside the house. And someone was berating his wife. How could you marry that no good husband of yours? He left you for 12 years. And he hears us say, I don't care if he leaves me for another 20, 12 years, if he can't, as long as he comes back as a great Talmud Hacham. And then Rabbi Kiva says, doesn't even go in to say hello. He goes right back to where he came from, to the yeshiva he came from. And 24 years, he comes back with 24,000 students. That's so hard to understand. Here he is, this 40-year-old illiterate shepherd. It took him 24 years of study, total study, immersion, and finally comes back as the, one of the top rabbis of the generation. Amazing story of where a person puts their mind to it. A person has the support of their family. A person has the support of their wife and their children and, and everyone around them. And what a person can achieve, they put their mind to it here, Rabbi Kiva. He achieved greatness, tremendous greatness. He was known as one of the greatest rabbis of the generation and probably one of the greatest rabbis of our history. And, and there's a Gemara, amazing Gemara, I want to share with you. This is a Gemara Menachot. The Gemara Menachot, it's in Daf Kaftet, I'm a bed. The Gemara talks about Moshe Rabbein. Moshe Rabbein, here's Moshe Rabbein. Uh, you can't say, you know, Moshe, who's Moshe Rabbein? Moshe Rabbein is Moshe, our teacher. He's the top rabbi ever in history, right? Moshe Rabbein is the top rabbi in history. Maybe, let's see. So the Torah says, Moshe Rabbein goes up to Shammai. Now, this is something which, what does that mean? We don't know. He goes to Shemaim and he sees Hashem, if you can say. He found Hashem. Putting crowns on the letters of the Torah. You know, it's one of the things in the Torah is the tagim. Tagim are the crowns that go on some letters of the Torah. Shin ayin tet nun zayin. Shatnez, letter shatnez. Shin ayin tet nun zayin. Shatnez gets gimel tzadi have three crowns on their left sides. Three crowns. 
And Beret Chaya, Bet Dalet Kuf, Chet Yud Hey, have one crown. So he sees Hashem putting crowns on the letters. By the way, this tradition, the Rambam says, was not existed at that time. At that time, certain specific letters had crowns. There was no real standard. Hashem was putting crowns wherever he wanted to put crowns. And Moshe Rabbeinu says to Hashem, the Gemara says, why are you putting crowns? What are these crowns? And Hashem says, in future generations, there's going to be a rabbi who's going to learn thousands of laws from these crowns. Thousands of laws from these crowns. And Moshe Rabbeinu says, wow, that's amazing. I don't know what these crowns are. Can you show me this rabbi? Who is this rabbi? So Hashem says, okay, go behind me, whatever that means. You have time travel. Mentioned the Gemara, there was time travel. Moshe Rabbeinu goes behind Hashem, whatever that means, goes in the future. And he ends up in the shiur of Rabbi Akiva, no less. Can you imagine? This is a great story. This is a fantastic story. This is a story of science fiction. Moshe Rabbeinu ends up in the shiur of Rabbi Akiva. It says he ended up on the eighth row. He sat at the end of the eighth row in front of Rabbi Akiva. In those days, the students were sitting in rows. The more advanced the students, the less the row was. In other words, he was on the first row. Highest, the highest students were in the top row. The lowest students were in the back rows. And, he, and every, every time some student would go away, they would move up. Everyone would take the place. They'd move up from the rows. The, the eighth row would go into the seventh row, seventh row, and the sixth row, and so on and so forth. And Moshe Rabbeinu ends up in the eighth row. You think Moshe Rabbeinu would be in the first row. It's not. It's not. The eighth row shows the level of the students of Rabbi Akiva, that their knowledge was even greater than Moshe Rabbeinu. We have to understand that. What does that mean? And that means that at the time of Rabbi Akiva already, there were tons of rabbinical laws that Moshe Rabbeinu never heard of never knew about. And therefore, when he's sitting in the Shur Rabbi Akiva, discussing probably all these rabbinical laws that he never heard of, he got very depressed. Gemara says he got very depressed. He didn't know what they were talking about. What is Rabbi Akiva talking about? Mukse. What is Mukse? Um, what is Eruv? What is an Eruv? All these things are rabbinical laws. Washing hands, what is that? That's a rabbinical law. Moshe Rabbein never heard of this. So he got weak. He says, what are they talking about? This is Torah. I don't know. When they got to some other topic and the students asked Rabbi Akiva, where do you learn this from, Rabbi? He said, Halacha lemoshe misinai. He learned this from a law from Moshe Rabbeinu from Sinai. It yashba da'ato. Moshe Rabbeinu was pacified. So he was, uh, <laughs> what an amazing story. We see over here the greatness of Rabbi Akiva, and we see the greatness of his students, Rabbi Akiva, and his students, amazing. So Rabbi Akiva, what's the greatness of Rabbi Akiva? Number one, he said, Nachomish Gamzu's favorite saying was, Gamzu how old are you, 40 years old? Gamzu great, you're 40 years old, it's good you're 40 years old. You don't know how to read, you don't know how to bet, it's good you don't know how to bet. It's so good about it. We find Rabbi Akiva writes a book. It's called Otiot de Rabbi Akiva. The book is called Letters of Rabbi Akiva. Rabbi Akiva's Letters. The book of Rabbi Akiva's Letters. What does that mean? Imagine a 40-year-old man is learning Alephet. Now, when a kid, we all learn Alephet probably as kids. You learn Alephet as a kid. You don't ask questions. The, the rabbi says, this is Aleph. Or the, the teacher says, this is Aleph. And he's like, okay, Aleph, Aleph. Rabbi Akiva is 40 years old. He said, Aleph, why is it shaped like this? 
Nachomish Gamzu, please tell me, why is the Aleph shaped like this? And Nachomish Gamzu says, no one ever asked me that question before. That's because you're 40 years old and you're smart and you're intellectual. You want to know the reason why it's shaped like this? I don't know. Maybe you can figure it out, Rabbi Kiva. Rabbi Kiva figures it out. He writes a book about the shape of the letters of Al Aleph Bet. It's an amazing book. You know, the Art Scroll, they put out a book, the letters of the alphabet, based on this book by Rabbi Kiva. It's very, very amazing reading. I gave a class once. Well, basically, it was one class on each letter. It's, it's about a class of an hour on each letter of the alphabet. That's how deep the symbolism of our alphabet is. It's amazing. I'll give you an example. The Gimel and the Dalit. Gimel is the, Rabbi Kiva says, Gomel Chasadim. Gimel stands for Gomel Chasadim, to do acts of kindness. What is the highest act of, what are the highest acts of kindness? The Ramah has eight, lists, eight levels of, of kindness, of tzedakah. So the gimel, it says, has its back. If you look at the shape of the gimel in the Torah, not the standard gimel, which we write, but the gimel in the Torah, which is the, the, uh, the kitab of, of Sofer, and the gimel, the back of the gimel goes backwards. It's leaning backwards. It's as if the hand of a person is behind them, full of money. And who's behind the gimel? The dalit. The dalit stands for the word dal. A dal is a poor man. So the gimel is giving gomel chasadim to the dal, to the to the rich man, to the, to the poor man. So the Gomel Chazin, the rich man, is giving kindness to the poor man. Anyway, there's a lot of symbolism of the letters that as a child, when he learned out of bed, does not ask questions. However, when a 40-year-old man learns out of bed, well, not everyone who's 40 years old learns out of bed, asks questions, but Rabbi Akiva was so sharp. He wanted to know. He was so inquisitive. Everything was a question which he, the letting the letters, okay, Rabbi, why is the olive shaped like this? Why is the bet shaped like this? And Nachum Shkamsu says, no one ever asked me that question. But you know what? Figure it out. Let's try and figure it out. Gamzu It's good you're 40 years old learning olive bet. What else? It says the letters, as you said, have tagim. Rabbi Kiva was able to learn thousands and thousands of laws from these crowns on the letters, which, you know, it's amazing. How do you learn laws from crowns on letters? Well, the answer is depends on the context. Where are the crowns? What's it, so what's it trying to tell you? What are the crowns trying to tell us? Rabbi Kibbutz learned thousands of lords. Gamzul Torah, he learned the Torah at 40 years old. And number three is every single et in the Torah. The et in the Torah, the word et, Aleph Taf, is really superfluous. Bereshit bara elokim et hashamayim ve'et Hashem created the world, should say, Hashem created the world. Bara elokim. Shamayim v'aretz. He created the heaven and the earth. He said, et ha-shamayim v'etat. Every single et in the Torah, Rabbi Kiva says, has significance. And therefore, I'm going to learn things from every single et. For example, kabet et avicha v'et imecha. Rabbi Kiva says, et over there is honor your oldest sibling. Big debate. Your oldest brother, your oldest sister. Oh, but basically, it's your oldest sibling. Honor your oldest sibling. That result says, all your older siblings. In other words, the person is number eight in the family. They have to honor all the previous seven siblings, according to Arizal. So it's interesting. That's the et. The et comes to signify something special. That's the, the greatest Rabbi Kiva, learning Torah at the age of 40. Things we take for granted, like the word et, Rabbi Kiva says, has some significance. The crowns of the letters we take for granted, Rabbi Kiva says, has significance. The letters, the shape of the letters that we take for granted, Rabbi Kiva says, 
has significance. Everything has significance when you're 40 years old, learning the Torah for the first time. Everything is a question. And we Jews, we encourage questions. Sometimes the questions are better than the answers. A lot of times in the Gemara, the Gemara starts up with questions and sometimes the questions are way better than the answers. And it's sure where people start asking questions, sometimes the rabbi says, you know what, I don't know. Your question is a good question. We have to find an answer. But sometimes the answer is not as good as the question. The question is a very good question. Anyway, let's move on with Rabbi Akiva. Rabbi Akiva is 40 years old. He starts to learn. He goes to some of the greatest rabbis of the generation, Rabbi Yoshua ben Hanania, who was a student of Rabbi Yochanan ben Zakkai. Everyone's heard of Rabbi Yochanan ben Zakkai. Rabbi Yochanan ben Zakkai was a student of the great Hillel. Hillel, it says, the Mishnah says, and had 80 students. The greatest of all his students is buried in a place called Amuka. Rabbi Yonatan ben Uziel, people go to his uh, kever. I took my kids a few times. He goes to a kever. If you're looking for a shiduk, apparently it's a sigula to find a shiduk. You go to Rabbi Yochanan, uh, you go to Rabbi Yonatan ben Uziel's kever. He was the greatest student of Hillel. Hillel had 80 students. He'd be the top student of Hillel. The 80 students of Hillel, and the lowest student of Hillel, can imagine, was the chief rabbi, Rabbi Yochanan ben Zakkai. Rabbi Yochanan ben Zakkai says knew everything. He even knew the, how to decipher the language of the angels and the language of the animals and birds. So can imagine, that's the lowest student of Hillel. The greatest student of Hillel is buried in Amuka, as I said. And I know people, I know of people who met on the bus to Amuka or back from Amuka. They went to Rabbi Yonatan ben and they met on the bus and they got married. Amazing amazing stories of Shiduchim there the person goes to Amuka and prays over there there's all our singles will have a Yeshua will find their mates with no troubles especially in this age of uh, Corona they'll find their mates and get married without any difficulties Bishut Rabbi Yonatan Ben Uziel the greatest student Hillel so anyway so Rabbi Yonatan Ben Uziel is the greatest student Rabbi Yochan Ben Zakkai is one of the lowest students yet Rabbi Yochan Ben Zakkai was the chief rabbi under the Romans, unfortunately. He was the rabbi of the Jews when they moved to Yavne. They moved the Sanhedrin to Yavne and then to Usha because of the Roman persecution. And Rabbi Yochan ben Zakkai says, had five great students. And of the five students, these were the rabbis of Rabbi Kiva. Rabbi Kiva was a student of the student of the student of Hillel, the great Hillel. So uh, Rabbi Eliezer ben Hurkinus, it says, was like a, a sealed a sealed pit. Nothing could escape. He remembered every single thing. Rabbi Yoshua ben Hanania says about his mother, Rabbi Yochan ben Zakkai would say, Ashrei Yolato, praised is this woman who had the son called Rabbi Yoshua ben Hanania. Rabbi Yoshua ben Hanania must be very great. He was a very great man. And these are the two rabbis of, uh, these are two students of Rabbi Yochan ben Zakkai who was buried next to the Rambam. Yes, in uh, Tiberia, if you go to Tiberia, the Kevin Rambam, uh, you'll find in the same uh, general area, you'll find Rabbi Yochanan ben Zakkai is buried over there with some of his top students as well. It's well worth going there if you go to Tiberia and pray at the, at the grave of the Rambam. Now, when we, this is very important to know, when we pray at the grave of anyone, we don't pray to them. That's idolatry. We don't pray to a righteous person. We don't pray to them. We don't go to a tzaddik and say, please, tzaddik, give me this. No, we say, please, Hashem, in merit of this tzaddik who's buried here, please answer me in the merit of so-and-so. Because if you pray to the tzaddik, that's idolatry. We pray to Hashem. We don't pray to any other 
third party. It's very important to know people go to the grave sites and to know what they're doing. Never, never, never pray to a human being. Never, never, never ask a human being. Always ask is good. In merit of so so, in merit of so so. So, the merit of all these Sadiqim, Hashem should answer us, and their tremendous merits, and the merits of all those Kiroshim who were killed in the Shoah should answer us. That Hashem, their merit should be forever, and that's right, Hashem. And we, the lucky generation, we are the, one of the luckiest generations in Jewish history, probably since the time, I said, the first commonwealth, because we're seeing now the return of Jews to Israel. Let's talk about my Arabic. So Rabbi Akiva, famous story. So Rachel tells Akiva, Akiva, I'm only going to marry you on condition that you are going to learn Torah. And Rabbi Akiva says, Akiva that time, says, what are you talking about? I'm 40 years old. I'm a literate. I'm, a, I'm an Amaritz. I'm a classic Amaritz. If I see a rabbi, I bite him like a donkey. What do you want to do? Learn Torah? How can the Torah penetrate my head? It says he sits by the stream thinking about this problem and he sees a drip. He has a drip of water, drip, 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 drip. He looks down, the water is dripping on a rock, and he sees that over time the water had pierced the rock and made a hole in the rock. He says, wow, he says, if the water can make a hole in the rock over time, just by dripping, the Torah can penetrate my head. If the water can penetrate a rock, definitely the Torah can penetrate my head. And he says, okay, Rachel, I'm ready to give it a try. I'm going to learn Torah, and I'll marry you, Bezrat Hashem, Hashem shall help us. Anyway, her father, as we said, disinherited them. They were terribly poor. We can't imagine what level of poverty they lived in. The Talmud says they never had proper beds. They, they lived in beds of straw. And every morning, he would get up, pluck the straw away from her hair. And it was a terrible, imagine this rich girl who gave up everything she had to marry this man uh, who was mostly absent from the house, Studying Torah, I don't know how she did it. Really, we have to, we owe it. And that's when he says, so let's just go quickly through the story. He goes away 24 years. He comes back as a, as a leader of the Jewish people, one of the great rabbis of Jewish people. He gets closer to where he lives. And this, this woman, his wife, <laughs> it's, a, it's a really moving, touching story. She comes to greet her husband, this great rabbi. And her student, his students don't recognize who she is. They see this proper, this old woman who looks disgusting. And they push her away from him. Get away from the rabbi. Get away from him. He says, he says to them, leave her alone. Whatever I have and whatever you have is because of this woman. It's because of her. She, her sacrifice. Her seeing what's the greatness of my innate greatness. I don't know what kind of great greatness, but. She saw my potential because she saw my potential. She sacrificed everything she had for me, everything I have, all the Torah I learned, and all the Torah you are all learning is because of this one. That's amazing merit, Rachel. All the Torah we are learning is her merit because she gave up everything for Rabbi Kiva, and Rabbi Kiva is one of the major, major sources of Torah today. Major source of Torah today. So we owe everything. The Mishnah, the Talmud, all students of the students of Rabbi Kiva. And we owe our Torah to Rachel, his wife as well. Leah Shalom, she have a blessed memory. And there's actually a place in Tiberia also. They say that she's buried over there. I was there as well. I don't know 100% for sure. We don't know who's really buried over there. We have no idea. But that's the tradition. We just go by our traditions. I went to the Kegar of Rachel, which is in Tiberia, the wife of Rabbi Kiva. Interesting. Now, Rabbi Kiva, what happens to Oshan? Amazing story. <laughs> Rabbi Kiva eventually becomes very wealthy. It's interesting because 
They made Kemach in Torah. Unfortunately, there's no flower, the Talmud says. There is no Torah. You cannot learn Torah and be a pauper. You've got to live. You've got to live within your means. You've got to live uh, well to learn Torah. But going to be rested. But going to be strong. But going to have good nourishment. And unfortunately, that's how the Talmud puts it. Mishnah says, but there's no flower. There's no Torah. And the Talmud, it's amazing. The Torah says, the Mishnah says the same thing. It says, in Torah, in Kemach. If there's no Torah, the flower is worthless. If there's no flower, there's no Torah. You can't learn Torah without flower. And if there's no Torah, all the flower in the world, all the wealth in the world, all the goods a person has is worthless without learning Torah. So when a person has to learn, use the materialism for spirituality. And that's the key of Judaism. The key of Judaism doesn't say materialism is bad. It just says materialism without Torah is worthless. Materialism without Torah, without spirituality is worthless. Anyway, Akiva is over there. Now he's, he came back home and an old man comes to him. He hears that there's a great rabbi in town. This old man, the Gemara says in Nidarim, was no other than his own father, the Kalba Sabua. Kalba Sabua does not recognize his former his former shepherd. Can you imagine? He goes to Akiva, now as the chief rabbi, one of the rabbis of the generation. He never became chief rabbi, but he was one of the rabbis, top rabbis of the generation. They were talking about Akiva, Akiva, Akiva. And he goes to Akiva, he says, Akiva, here you're a great man. I want to ask you a question. Many years ago, I disowned my daughter. Akiva says, yeah, why do you disown your daughter? She married this ignorant shepherd. Now, you know what? He was 40 years old. He was a pauper and he was an ignorant shepherd. You know what? I didn't mind the fact that he was a pauper. I didn't mind the fact that he was a shepherd. I minded the fact that he was ignorant of Torah. I wanted my beautiful daughter to marry at least someone who is knowledgeable of Torah. And Kippa said, would you have made that vow if that ignorant shepherd would today be a rabbi like me? And Skabasaba said, no way. He was a rabbi like you. Of course I would never make that vow. So Akiva says, your vow is released. I found you an opening to annul your vow because I am that ignorant shepherd. Wow, that was such a moving scene. Imagine, and Kalbasabo hugs him, kisses him, he says, now whatever I have goes to my daughter and to you. So Akiva became very wealthy. He inherited uh, through his wife, the Kalbasabua. And the rabbis say there were three different parts to his wealth. There was a shipwreck, which was and a treasure chest washed up on the beach right next to him. He got very wealthy. Uh, second reason, he got wealthy. And uh, it was not just wealth. It was the inner wealth that made Rabbi Kiva, but he was, he was very wealthy in his own right now. And uh, so he had 24,000 students. The Gemara says, unfortunately, the days between Pesach and Shavuot, which are known as the days of the Omer. Now, what is the Omer? An Omer is a measurement. It's a measurement of barley that is brought on the first night, uh, the first night after Yom Tov, of the first day of Pesach. So the second night of Pesach, it says that the Shluchet Betin, the messengers of the Betin, of the Sanhedrin Agadon in Yushalayim would go to the fields around Yushalayim and they would go and harvest barley, the fresh barley, the Hadash, the new barley of the new year, and they would bring it back 
and they would actually grind it and sift it so they got fine flour, barley flour, and omer, which is an isaron, which is isaron uh, haifa, uh, it's an omer, a measure of barley flour, they would bring in the bed of Yiddash as an offering, they were a waving offering, a tnufa, a waved offering. The Kohen would take the, the barley and his uh, flour in a bowl in his hands and wave it in six directions and offer it up to God. So that was the barley. And then um, that is called the Omer. So it's once off. A one-time barley offering is called the Omer. And it's called, today we call it Sfirat Omer because we count the days to Shavuot. Imagine the Jews get to Har Sinai and they're walking all the way from Egypt and Hashem told Moshe, Tavdun et malharaze. The word Tavdun, you will serve God on this mountain. Tavdun, it should be Tavdun. You will serve. Why is it Tavdun? The commentaries say the Nun stands for the word number 50. Nun is 50 in Gematria. 50 days later, you will serve God on this mountain. So they were counting the days between leaving the shrine. And getting to Har Sinai because they knew the whole purpose. This is, this is very important. One of the whole purposes of leaving Egypt was to get the Torah. The purpose of leaving. Again, the materialism is for the sake of spirituality. Freedom is for the sake of spirituality. You have to remember that. Freedom is not freedom from religion. It's freedom for religion. It's something that Jews through the centuries fought for. Freedom of religion, we fought for it. We fought bitterly for it. And when we got it, we don't appreciate it enough. Many Jews are just running away from their Judaism, their intermarrying, their assimilating. And instead of using the freedom we have to increase our spirituality, unfortunately, we can use it to decrease and destroy our spirituality. And that's our lesson that we count the Omer. What does that mean? We count the days between our freedom to our getting of the Torah. We're counting these 50 days. We count the 49 days and the 50th day is Shavuot. The Torah does not give a date for Shavuot. It gives a time period of 50 days. 50 days after you came out of Mitzrayim, that's when you're going to get the Torah. And we count down. It's like a countdown. We can't wait. Every day that goes by, it's another day less to get the Torah. We can't wait. We want that Torah so badly. We should all yearn for the Torah. And yearn for it, to accept it, not just to get the Torah, but to accept the Torah, learn the Torah, as Rabbi Hashem, we shall be on that madrigal, like Rabbi Kiva, to drink it down with thirst. So what happened? Unfortunately, now, the Ramban says the days between Pesach and Shavuot are really one long chol hamoed. The Ramban, these views, Pesach as being like the first part of the festival, and Shavuot being like the last day of the show of the festival, and the days in between are like Cholamoy, which makes them the happiest days of the year. Imagine a long Cholamoy, a long holiday, long Cholamoy. Those are the 49 days between Pesach and Shavuot, point Ramban. What happened was, in the time of the Second Temple, our happiness turned to mourning. The rabbis say the 24,000 students of Rabbi Kiva died in this period. And therefore, the days of the Omer, which is the happiest days of the calendar, became days of mourning, unfortunately. The question is why? What happened? What happened? So I just want to quote before the Sefer Achinuch, which we said is the book of education written by uh, anonymously by one of the great rabbis of Spain, 
he writes over there, he, he gives you the reasons for all the mitzvot over there, he goes through all the mitzvot in the parasha, each parasha of the week. And he brings down in, in parashat Emor, which is where the mitzvah of the Omer is brought down. He says over there, the entire basis of the Jewish people's existence is only for Torah. This is very hard to comprehend today. It's very hard for us to absorb this message. The entire basis of the Jewish people's existence is only for Torah. All of existence was created for Torah. This was the reason for the redemption and exodus from Egypt. So that we would receive the Torah on Sinai. And therefore we were commanded to count from Passover until Shavuot. To display our excitement and anticipation towards the day of giving of the Torah. We long for that day like a slave longs and counts the days until he will be free. What does that mean? When are we free? When we left Egypt? Apparently not. We were not free when we left Egypt. Why? We were still slaves to our passions, to our desires. It's only when a person really accepts Torah that they can be free. We're going to talk about that more when we talk about Shavuot. So keep that in your mind. A person can only be free if they accept the Torah. They can only be free if they accept God's um, kinship upon us. So that's something which we have to accept. So in addition, so it's Cholamoy, the days of joy. All of a sudden, Rabbi Kiva, his students, 24,000 pass away. They died during this period. And the question is, was it like a Holocaust? It was a kind of Holocaust, even though it's only 24,000, but it was much more than 24,000. Because Rabbi Akiva lived during the Bar Kokhba revolt of 135 CE, the Bar Kokhba revolt of 135 CE, after the destruction of the Second Temple in 70 CE, approximately. Bar Kokhba tried to rebuild the temple. It was a tremendous revolt against the Romans. It was a revolt that the Romans really scared them. The revolt of the Jews shook the Roman Empire more than anything else. And that's why they devoted the biggest legions they had, the best legions they had, to put down this terrible revolt. And they sent their best general, Hadrian. Now, everyone knows Hadrian. I tell you, they live in England. Everyone knows about Hadrian. Why? Because it's an amazing wall. If you go up north, Hadrian's, it's called Hadrian's Wall. It's like the Great Wall of China in a smaller, <laughs> the British Great Wall of China. It's the Great Wall cutting England away from Scotland because the Scottish always caused trouble invading the British at that time. And the British were under Rome. And the Romans built that wall to keep the Picts, they were known as the Picts, the Scottish were known as the Picts, keep them out of England because they kept causing trouble. They built a wall, man. They built a wall like the Great Wall of China. It's called Hadrian's Wall because he was the biggest general at that time. His first mission was to, to stop the Scots coming into England. The second mission was go and put down the Barakokhba revolt. Hadrian was vicious, terribly vicious, terribly vicious. It's called the Hadrianic persecution of the Jews. He came to Israel and he put down the Barakokhba revolt. Brutality. We lost, I would say, we lost proportionately more Jews, proportionately more Jews in the Roman persecution than we lost in the Holocaust. So on a sense, it was a Holocaust as well. People don't realize that there were 7 million Jews at that time, according to some accounts, out of 70 million population. So 10% of the Roman Empire at that time was Jewish. People don't know that. 10% of the Roman Empire at that time was Jewish. 
and he he killed at least four million at that time. Four million Jews were killed, so at least we're talking about sixty percent of the Jewish population were killed. So that's a that's a Holocaust. That's a tremendous Holocaust. And uh, um, he destroyed the land. He put uh, rocks. He put salt. He made the land uninhabitable till the Jews started coming back. The first Aliyah, second Aliyah. You see how they planted the trees, the JNF planted the trees in Israel. Thank God I'm on, really on the verge of the Jerusalem forest. It's the most beautiful view. It's like the Poconos, for those of you in the Poconos. It's a gorgeous view. Every time I go to Shul, uh, I just sit by the window and I look out and I say, Marabu Hashem. Thank you, Hashem, for this. We see Yushalayim, Harim Savidla, Yushalayim surrounded by mountains and the trees growing around the Jerusalem forest. We're so lucky. We're the luckiest generation. For thousands of years, the fact that, okay, so 24,000 rabbis died. The question, how they die? So Talmud and the Babli seem to say they died of a plague. And uh, they died between Pesach and Shavuot. And so therefore we are obliged to count and show our respect and appreciation for the Torah. And these guys, Rabbi Kiva students, died because they lacked respect for each other. Now that's an amazing statement. Because Rabbi Kiva is known for his statement. That's famous. And the kids learn this in school. The song, Amar Rabbi Akiva, Amar Rabbi Akiva. Ve'ahavta l're'acha kamocha. Akiva says, Ve'ahavta l're'acha kamocha is the basis of the whole Torah. To love your fellow man as yourself, to love your friend as yourself is the basis of the Torah. So how could Rabbi Akiva's students be the ones who did not show respect to each other? That's the question we have to pose According to this opinion, what happened over here? That's so. Number one is Sfirat Omer is the happiest time of the year. It's Cholamoy going to Ramban. All of a sudden, it becomes a very major uh, mourning period, even though it's not the same mourning as the three weeks. It's not, but definitely not the same. You're allowed to say Shechianu. You're allowed to do other things. Um, not getting married uh, only after Lagba Omer. Have haircuts after like Baomer, Sfarim, Lad Baomer, Lamedale, the 34th day of Yomer. But it's not the same as the three weeks. The three weeks is much more mourning than like at least the, the time of Yomer. So, so anyway, so uh, it says that Rabbi Kiva had 12,000 pairs of students. Uh, all of them died in the same period because they did not treat each other with respect. And the world remained desolate. What does that mean? The Jewish world. The Torah world was desolate. All these thousands of students. Imagine how much Torah there would have been. If these students of Rabbi Kiva would be alive. So what happened is Rabbi Kiva took five more students. Five more students. All the Torah we have today comes from these five students. So think. If our Torah comes from five students, how much Torah would there have been from 24,000 students? We're really mourning for what was lost. 24,000 students of Rabbi Kiva. How much Torah was lost of Rabbi Kiva? Amazing. So these five students kept the Torah going. So the question is, why? What happened? So why? Why such a major period of mourning for twenty-four thousand Jews? It's a Holocaust today, six million Jews. Why? Why do we? Why such a long period of mourning for twenty-four thousand Jews? So Rav Yechiel Michael Epstein, who is the author of Aruch Hashukah, he says it's not just the tragedy of Rabbi Akiva's students that we are mourning for. It is connected in the Ashkenazi world with crusades, pogroms, blood libels that occurred a thousand years later in the course of Jewish history. And these attacks are often rooted in a twisted Christian perspective of Pesach. And the days after Pesach became a time of peril for Jews in Christian countries, the blood libels, 
the Jews using red wine was a blood libel, they used blood of Christian children. So uh, the Shulchan Aruch, the Ramah, Ramosha Isilis, the Ashkenazi Posek, he says not to use red wine, use white wine to stop all these blood libels. So that's why the Omer, it says, he said, became such a period of mourning because the Crusades and all the bad things that happened to the Jews in Europe is because of uh, Pesach, basically. They blamed us, the matzah and the wine. All this was part of their blood libels. Rav Shriragon says, Rav Akiva raised many students, but he says, look what he says. He says something different from the Talmud. He says there was religious persecution on the students of Rabbi Akiva. So the Romans, he blames the Romans. The Romans killed the students of Rabbi Akiva. The Romans did not want Jews to learn Torah, especially after Bar Kokhba. So number one is, they didn't give respect to each other. That's what Talmud says. Number two is, Rav Shri Ragan says, they were killed shmad. They were killed because they were Jews, because they were learning Torah. Number two, just like Rabbi Akiva was killed teaching Torah, they were killed as well. And number three, Number three is the Bar Kokhba revolt. Now, it's interesting because Rabbi Kiva was one of the biggest supporters of Bar Kokhba. His name was not Bar Kokhba, his name was Bar Kospa. But Rabbi Kiva interpreted a very important pasuk in the Torah. And this pasuk was said by a rasha, terrible evil person called Bilam. Bilam, the, the evil prophet who blessed the Jewish people against his will. Hashem put these words in his mouth. And he was forced to say them. He had to say them through his gritted teeth. He didn't want to say them. He hated the Jews. A star will come from Jacob. And Bar Kokhba was that star. He said, this is the, the meaning of the star will come from Jacob. Bar Kokhba. So Bar Kokhba had three names. Number one, his real name was Bar Kokhba. And Rabbi Kiva called him Bar Kokhba because he interpreted the Pasuk, the Mashiach is the star. And here is the, the son of the star. Here is Bar Kokhba, the Mashiach. And after Bar Kokhba was killed, they called him Bar Koziva, which means a lies. Kol Adam Kozev, we say in the Halel. So yeah, Bar Koziva became known as Bar Koziva, the liar. He was the son of the liar. He was a lie. Bar Kokhba was no longer the Mashiach. He was a liar. He was a liar. So anyway, so let's just go through Rabbi Kiva and Bar Kokhba. We said Rabbi Kiva is one of the biggest supporters of Bar Kokhba. And Rambam learns the halakha. The fact that Rabbi Kiva supported Bar Kokhba without asking him for signs and for wonders and for miracles, Rambam says, in the laws of kings, we see that the Mashiach does not have to do signs and wonders and miracles. If Rabbi Kiva accepted him without signs and wonders and miracles, we see the Mashiach does not have to do signs and wonders and miracles. So how do we know the Mashiach is the Mashiach? And we have to talk about this some of the time. There's 10 things Mashiach has to do. There's a lot of things Mashiach has to do. One of them is he has to rebuild the temple. He has to fight our wars. He has to bring all the Jews back to Israel. He has to make them more religious. He's got a lot of things to do. There's a lot of things to do in his plates without doing wonders and miracles. Well, I think a lot of them are going to be wonders and miracles because they're very hard things to achieve. And it's wonderful you can do them. Really wonderful you can do them. And then we know if he did all these things, he is the Mashiach Rambam says. So really, there's no, no wonders, no miracles, but you have to achieve all these different things. It's amazing. Well, Mashiach is coming. You know, it's towards the end of time, as Rabbi Shev, we're going to see, hopefully in our lifetime. Anyway, so that was 
Bar Kochva, so you can understand. We know Rabbi Kiva was part of the Bar Kochva revolt. He supported Bar Kochva, and he Rambam writes he was an arms bearer of Bar Kochva, and he quotes the Jerusalem Talmud. This is a Jerusalem Talmud. Rabbi Shimon Bar Yochai, another of the, one of the five students of Rabbi Kiva, Rabbi Shimon Bar Yochai, buried in Miron, says Akiva, my master, would expound this pasuk which is talked about. A star will come from Yaakov. As Koziba will come from Yaakov. Well, this is after we know he was a Koziba. We know he's a liar. That's after he died already. But he would say, Bar Kochva is the King Mashiach. Amen. The greatest rabbi of the generation would say, Bar Kochva is the King Mashiach. Amazing. Uh, Talmud, uh, Yushalmi, the Jews of Talmud. And when he was... When he was killed, they called him Bar Koziba, the one of lies. So they changed the Kokhba to Koziba, lies. And amazing, amazing. So maybe they, maybe they were killed in the time of... Uh, so we have, they were then treated each other with respect. They were killed by the Romans at the time of Shmad, where they, they tried to destroy the Torah. The students Rabbi Kiva epitomized Torah. They killed Rabbi Kiva as well. Eventually, they killed him as well. And number three is maybe they were fighting on behalf of Barakopo. Maybe they joined Barakopo's revolt against the Romans and they were killed. So we don't know exactly what happened. We have all these different opinions of what happened to the students of Rabbi Akiva. Now, what's very interesting is that there's another rabbi in the Talmud who has a very similar background to Akiva. Not exactly. Let's hear the story. It's amazing. Wild. This is one of the wildest stories in the Talmud. One of the wildest stories of the Talmud. His name is Rabbi Yochanan Betorta. Rabbi Yochanan, the son of an ox. Rabbi Yochanan Betorta. <laughs> wow. And he would argue Rabbi Akiva. Bar Kokhva is not the Mashiach. Bar Kokhva is not the Mashiach. Grass will grow from your cheeks, Akiva, before the Mashiach comes. This is not the time for the Mashiach. What's going on? The grass will grow from the cheeks of Rabbi Akiva before the Mashiach comes. How can grass grow from his cheeks? And the answer is, in other words, you're going to be buried. Akiva, you're going to be buried before Mashiach comes. And from your grave, grass is going to grow. That growing from your cheeks, Akiva. And I just want to finish up this story. It's such a beautiful story. Who was Rabbi Yochanan ben Torta? At least we can say we learned about Rabbi Akiva, learned about Rabbi Yochanan ben Torta. Who was Rabbi ben Torta? It says there was a Jew who sold his ox to this non-Jew. And every day the non-Jew would work with the Jew's ox. It wasn't the Jew's ox anymore. It was the non-Jew's ox. And work, work, work. One day the ox stopped working. He refused to work. And he got beaten and thrashed. And he still refused to work. And the non-Jew came back to the Jew. He says, Mekach ta'ut, you sold me a false bill of sale. This ox does not work. And the Jew says, okay, give me one minute. It's Shabbat right now. Let me go and talk to the ox. And he talked into the ears of the ox. Before you belonged to a Jew, you had to keep Shabbat. Now you don't belong to a Jew anymore. There's no Shabbat for you. You can work seven days a week. The ox started working. And the non-Jew said, I don't want this ox. You just did black magic. I know he did, but the ox changed and maybe put in whatever he did, some kind of demons or whatever. I don't know what you're doing. I'm very superstitious. And the Jew said, no, I'll tell you what I told him. I tell them, we Jews, we keep Shabbat. And before you belong to a Jew, you never worked on Shabbat. But now you don't belong to a Jew anymore. You belong to a non-Jew. You're allowed to work on Shabbat. So you have to work on Shabbat. And so he started working on Shabbat. So this man says, you know what? My ox, this is to God of the Jews. 
and I don't. Maybe I should. And he went and he converted and he became known as Rabbi Yochanan, the son of the ox. <laughs> so that was his name, Rabbi Yochanan ben Tor- Torta. Rabbi Yochanan ben Torta was Yochanan ben So again, classic. He's about the Shuba, not just about the Shuba. So Ger, Rabbi Akiva is about the Shuba, descendant of Ger, amazing stories. And he would argue with Akiva. Akiva, he says, Mashiach will not come now. And you know why he, why he said that? He said, because the reason, he himself, he was the one who gave us the reason. He said, the second temple was destroyed because of Sinat Hinam. And Sinat Hinam is alive and well today. I'm not talking about today, even though it's alive and well today. We see today how hard it is to make a government in Israel because people don't get along. Unfortunately, we're still living in second temple times. People don't learn their history. People need to learn about Sinat Hinam. We Jews have to get along with each other. We have no one else. Everyone else hates us. Everyone doesn't like us. We have to at least get along with each other. We have to learn the lessons of the students of Rabbi Kiva. We have to learn the lessons of the period of the second temple. Rabbi, Yud, Rabbi Yochan ben Torta says, the third temple will come when people get along. That's why it's not going to come now. And that's why we need to get along. We have to learn to rectify this sinat now. We have to learn from Rabbi Kiva. And we have to talk more about it maybe next week. We'll continue. Same time, same place, same channel. You've just experienced another Torah class brought to you by TorahAnytime.com.